You are listening to the Keeping Abreast with Karen podcast, brought to you by the Karen T. Stahl Research and Breast Institute. Now, here's your host, Karen T. Stahl. Hello, and thank you for joining us again for another installment of Keeping Abreast with Karen. This week on Mammary Monday, we have two very interesting guests, and I'm happy that you're joining us again. And if it's your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy what we have to offer today. My son Chuck is joining me. Hey, everybody. And I can't do it without him, so I'm glad he's here. Chuck, tell our listeners about our guest today. Well, today's episode, as you said, is about compassion, and we have two incredible breast health professionals that live out compassion in their day-to-day care with patients, and they're from the Ochsner Tansy Center, and that is Caroline Smith-Graham, physician's assistant, and Dr. Ralph Corsetti, who's the associate professor of surgery and the medical director of the Tansy Breast Center. These two folks have been amazingly helpful to so many survivors in the New Orleans area and people who travel to Ochsner for treatment. Um, We got to talk to Caroline quite a bit, particularly about environmental exposures to carcinogens and how you can reduce your risks of cancer, breast cancer or any cancers, simply by paying attention to products that you buy women use so many products in one day um what do you guys use shaving cream soap deodorant you hit the door i don't even have hair so it's <laughs> shaving cream uh yeah and deodorant most days you know tuesdays thursdays is deodorant no i'm kidding but yeah, it's very little but even everything that you rub on your skin within a few seconds is absorbed into your bloodstream and we don't think about that we think about ingestible things right you know things it's we true. eat things we drink but caroline had so much great information and resources that we can go to to find out information on these different products. And I think you're really going to enjoy her interview because the the meat of it is read labels. If you can't pronounce it, it's probably not good for you. Limit the amount of products you put on your body, use in your household. Um, I believe she mentions a website at the end of the interview where you can go to get a good idea of, of where what's good for you and what isn't good for you well don't take our word for it without further ado here's our interview with caroline smith graham joining us today is caroline smith graham physician's assistant at ashner health systems at the tansy breast center on jefferson highway mrs graham was my first point of contact in new orleans in the world of breast cancer treatment and that was upon our return to nola post katrina caroline thanks for participating in our podcast today Absolutely. Caroline, you were extremely helpful when our KTS RBI Foundation made its debut in New Orleans in 2016. Can you recall instances when prior to our endowed partnership, patients had to forego 3D mammogram screenings because of it being cost prohibitive? What was their next course of action? So that was a difficult circumstance, especially for women with dense breast tissue. Um, Basically, if their insurance company didn't cover a 3D mammogram, their only option was to get 2D mammogram or pay for it out of pocket. And unfortunately, at that time, I was seeing a lot of patients who didn't have insurance. And a lot of them were also uneducated, and they didn't know there was even a difference between 2D and a 3D mammogram. And so for a lot of these patients, you know, they were just going in to get their mammogram and a cancer could have been missed, especially if they had extremely dense breast tissue. 
but you know they didn't even know there was another option and if they did if we happened to educate it on them and they couldn't afford it there was no other um there was no other way that we could tell them you know this is what we can do for you this is some financial assistance plan until you came along and helped with that and it was certainly our pleasure to do that and we don't want anyone to have to settle for second best or not have access to the best possible early detection tool sure. that's available to people um, yeah. and I, i'm glad that's been erased yeah so with the help of representative julie stokes and senator patrick connick house bill 460 passed unopposed in three committees signed by the governor in 2018 making 3d mammograms the standard in louisiana and that almost never happens that almost yeah. never happens where it just flies through and yeah. i have to believe there was some divine intervention going on there but some of that divine intervention was our very own personal earth angel caroline graham and <laughs> you were there to observe the process and what did what was going through your mind when when this was happening were you did you have a sense of accomplishment relief what was going on i had a huge sense of hope because you know our job as practitioners is to give patients the best access to care and to me if we could prove that 3d was the best standard and that it could you know provide early detection prevent prevent breast cancers and just help patients in general and that was the best screening tool there was no other option and i felt like getting this bill passed was it was a huge sense of relief and i think um for those of you listening if you don't know what a 3d mammogram is it's basically it's instead of the two-dimensional like a side view and a front view of a breast it basically takes a mammogram and cuts it into slices. So you get a ton of different one millimeter cuts of the breast and you can kind of scroll through it like a CT scan. And um, it's great for women with dense breast tissue because if you have dense breast tissue, it's a lot harder to read your mammogram. It's kind of fuzzy as opposed to someone with very fatty breast tissue. So you're, it's easier to miss a breast cancer. And these women who have dense breast tissue, you know, going back on their past mammogram, that was a cancer just wasn't seen. You know, um, maybe if she would have had a 3D, they could have found it earlier. And that's really hard for patients, you know? And like I said, our job as practitioners is to provide the best access to care and give them the best standard that there is. And so for me, there was no other option. And luckily with Julie Stokes and a bunch of other advocates, I think we were, we did a great job at showing them that, you know, this was something that needed to be implemented and patients needed to be educated on it. And as many places as possible needed to have the 3D mammo machine because this was our way of fighting breast cancer. That's an excellent point. And you're right. A great way to describe how the radiologist reads that, that data is imagine having a book, a physical book in your hand, and you open that book and break the binding, and the book is open to see one page, one leaf at a time. That's how the radiologist can find the smaller cancers, um, and, and that's been a huge help 
and in the first line of defense against breast cancer. So I know yeah. you're conscious, how conscious you are as a physician's assistant, um, and in particular as a mother about products that you use in your home and on your person that could potentially be dangerous and what are the safest products to use. Do you have any recommendations to our audience that you'd like to share regarding um, products you absolutely would not use and products that you prefer? Sure. Um, so this just made me think of something. Um, two days ago, I was listening to a virtual series by the American Society of Breast Surgeons, and one of the best papers that they reviewed was about chemical straighteners and hair dyes and whether or not oh, wow. they increase the risk of breast cancer. And they studied a group of about 1,000 women for several years. And none of these women had breast cancer, but they all had a sister with breast cancer. And those that used permanent hair dyes more often and chemical straighteners more often actually had an increased risk of getting breast cancer. And the question that was presented at the end was, you know, what do we tell our patients? Do we tell them like to stop dyeing their hair and stop straightening their hair? And the answer was, there's many single factors that can contribute to breast cancer. And choosing one more of those factors can increase your risk. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's basically your benefit risk, risk threshold is up to you, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I always say everything affects everything else. And smoking increases your risk of getting a breast cancer. Um, alcohol increases your risk of getting a breast cancer. Being overweight increases your risk of getting a breast cancer. And so do many chemicals and products that we use. And so, you know, if you use a lot of um, chemical toxic-free products on your body, but you don't exercise and you don't eat right and you don't smoke, you know, are you going to get a breast cancer? You know, it's, it's hard to say, but doing those little things to decrease your risk can make a significant impact. It's all about exposure. And when it comes to women, I think it's important because we put so many ingredients on our body every day. Like they said before, the average woman leaves her household, she puts like 15 different chemicals on her body. And yes. that can be anything from, you know, makeup to shampoo to body wash. And the problem is, is that we trust the companies that we buy these products from but they don't care about us. They're just trying to sell something. If you look at Europe, European Union, they ban 1,400 ingredients per year in their over-the-counter wow. products. The United States only bans 30. And there wow. hasn't been a change in the personal care product and makeup industry. There hasn't been a law that was passed since 1938 in the United States. And wow. that's sad. That's staggering. Me, you know? Yes. And so what I tell women is read your labels. You know, if there's things you can't pronounce on the back of something, it's probably not good for you. So anything, um, parabens and phthalates can be endocrine disruptors. Um, so I really say focus on anything that you see like methyl, propyl, isobutyl, or mm -hmm. BPA, bisphenol A. And those can disrupt the endocrine system. So just be cognitive of that. Anytime you see the word fragrance, 
it's basically like a trade secret for that company prohibiting mm -hmm. transparency. So mm -hmm. behind that term fragrance can be, you know, up to 3000 different ingredients that are terrible for you, but the company just doesn't want to say what those are. So I really research your company, you know, see if they're willing to be transparent about what they're selling you. Um, people don't realize, but anytime we put something on our skin, it's absorbed into the bloodstream in 26 seconds. And, wow. you know, we, we buy into the fact that, okay, nicotine patches work and birth control patches work, but we don't question, you know, okay, I'm going to put this lotion on my skin every morning. And I have no idea what's in it, but it smells good, you know? <laughs> um, it's true. We, we do have to be more vigilant about reading labels and, and we have, most of us have access to the internet and you can quickly um, figure out what definitions of chemicals are that are unfamiliar to us and make a good exactly. decision. Exactly. One of my favorite websites is the Environmental Working Group. And their goal is to create a healthier environment for everyone. And the interesting thing about that website is you can go to it and find almost any product on there. Like you could do over-the-counter Neutrogena face wash. And it'll tell you the different toxicity levels for your immune system, allergies, cancer, and I forget what the last one was. But it's like all on a scale of 1 to 10. And basically, um, you know, you can look at that and decide, you know, is it worth it? Is it worth it to me to use this knowing that it could increase my cancer risk? And, you know, not everybody's perfect. I sometimes drink out of water bottles that are, you know, not BPA free. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm going to get my hair dyed one day, but it's not something I'm going to do all the time, you know? And so I always say everything in moderation, you know? Try yes. and not drink alcohol every night. Try and exercise a few times a week. Try and not, you know, gain a lot of weight, those types of things. Um, but be cognitive of the things you're putting on your body as well as in your body because that also affects us. Would you repeat again uh, the website you referred to for our yes. listeners um, for it's the environmental advice? The it's ewg.org, the environmental, and they actually have lists on there of like, you know, sunscreens and makeup and things that you can use that um, the companies are transparent about their ingredients and they're healthy for you and they're not harmful to you. That's wonderful, wonderful, useful information. Uh, that's very appreciated. And and we don't realize what we're using is sometimes dangerous for us. And even eliminating something as simple as artificial sweeteners is a good step in the right direction. Exactly. Um, taking charge of what you're putting in your body. Exactly. So Caroline, throughout your career, you've collected many pearls of wisdom and memories about patients. Would you care to share a story or a pearl of wisdom with us today? Sure. So um, a few years ago, I remember um, we were in clinic and the resident went and saw a cancer patient. She just had a bilateral mastectomy. And he said, um, the incision looks great. Everything looks great. It's, you're healing well. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll get through this. And then he walks out and I walked in and she was crying. And she said, it doesn't look great to me.
and she said, I didn't, I never thought it would look like this. And she was very disappointed that he didn't understand what she was going through and how she was feeling. And what I took from that was our perception of people is not always their reality. You know, any cancer patient can be walking through the hall with a smile on their face and makeup on and look like they have it all together. And that might not be their reality. And so, you know, we have to really be, um, especially when it comes to breast cancer, remember that um, it, you know, how these women look, it affects them emotionally, mentally, spiritually, everything. And even though as practitioners, the incisions might look good to us, it may take a while before they're able to accept it as their new normal, you know? That's so very compassionate of you. Um, and, and I know it isn't on purpose, but sometimes it just becomes a job for uh, medical staff and they forget the human factor. And, and that's um, vital in this area of medicine. And, and your compassion is really evident today we really appreciate that about you Uh, you. I can't thank you enough yeah let's 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 talk a little bit about um, at some point in your career you were able to hold some art therapy sessions as a creative outlet Um, and we talked about this in an earlier podcast uh, integrative therapy integrative therapy is not instead of chemo or radiation it is in complement to so uh, some people get better faster painting on canvas or mm-hmm. um, having massages. Tell us about your sessions with patients using art as some quality time and a creative outlet. So um, a few years ago, I was volunteering at Children's Hospital and working with their cancer patients, and they did art therapy. And the way that they explained it to me was whenever a patient has cancer, they can't control anything. They feel like they feel like the cancer is encompassing their whole life. And they don't know the outcome. They don't know how the treatment's gonna affect them. They don't know how they're gonna feel the next day. They don't know if they're gonna die and when it's when they're gonna die or if they're gonna live. And doing something, creating something of their own is something they can control and it gives them a sense of power and it gives them a sense of relief. And I thought that was one of the coolest things. And I love to paint. And so I said, I want to create something that can be a distraction for these patients. I want them to be happy and get out of their world of cancer, even if it's just for 30 minutes or an hour. And so I started this art therapy class. And it was great because these patients that thought they never could draw or paint were loving it. And I think part of it was even if you know, they thought it looked ugly after, they were able to laugh and say, well, at least I had fun doing it. Or look what I created. And I'm going to show my husband and my daughter whenever I get home. And I even had a lot of patients who started buying paint or colors, you know, outside of the class and creating their own things at home. And it was just their way of expressing themselves, you know, and expressing what they were going through. Because there's a lot of emotions that they experience whenever they're having the treatment, whether it's chemo or surgery or radiation. 
And a lot of times it's hard for them to deal with that. You know, they don't have the energy to go run or do kickboxing or whatever it is that they might have used to do as like an outlet. And art was just a way that wasn't, it wasn't hard. And it was just something they could do while they were getting their chemo or, you know, after they were done seeing their doctor. And it only took an hour or so. And it was very therapeutic. Well, Caroline, not only are you smart and beautiful, you have a heart of gold. And we're so happy to have you in alliance with us and the help that you give us and your contributions to Breast Friends. I just can't thank you enough for all that you do. And I'm really pleased that you joined us today. You gave us some great information and we're going to definitely use it and check out this website and hey everybody is an artist until someone tells you you aren't so pick up the brush pick up the pen and (laughs) yes and just enjoy yourself well thank you so much I know it's been a long day for you get home to that husband and beautiful baby and thank you for joining us today we love you yeah take care I love y'all thank you all right honey bye-bye Wow. After all that information, and especially with all the time we're asked to spend at home these days, um, I'm just going to start going through cabinets and and getting rid of things and reading labels and purging what I think might be potentially dangerous. It's, It's good to be aware of those things, to be aware of labels. Caroline made a great point, you know, take a look at the things on the back. And they always say, if you can't, if you don't understand what that word is, question it find out what that chemical is what it does and most of us have you know google at our fingertips and you know there are no mysteries in the world anymore so it's easy to decipher for yourself what stays what goes absolutely outstanding we're going to put up that link too that she had mentioned on our on our social media and our our web page we'll put it in a blog if people want to go back and reference that uh that takes us into our next interview with dr ralph corsetti and this is another one that that really blew me away when I was when I was editing it, and I remembered, wow, this he's really giving a lot of not just good medical information that you could get from an encyclopedia, but he has a human element to it. It's why it's really perfect for this compassion topic that we have today, because you can see it in the way he practices his medicine. Truly, Caroline and Ralph and Dr. Corsetti, to be professional and respectful, but I do like to call him Ralph sometimes because he is a friend. Both have been so amazingly supportive of our efforts. Um, Even Dr. Corsetti mentions that our foundation and our endowment has been able to allow them to help promote awareness and education and research for breast health and for hopefully the end of it someday. That's really the goal is to end it. Dr. Corsetti and Caroline have both made it their business to go up to the state capitol with us and help both helped us speak and be supportive for House Bill 460, mandating that 3D tomosynthesis was the standard in Louisiana. I can't thank them enough for that. Our Oshner friends and supporters have been amazingly behind us through this whole journey. And, and I think you will have heard in both of these interviews how much Caroline and Dr. Corsetti care for their patients. Um, they care for their psychological well-being. They care for... Um, the fact that they want the patients to fully understand what's going on in their lives so that they can make good 
survival decisions. And when all this is going on in your life, it's very hard to keep your mind clear to do that. But, you know, I have seen them both in action and you want them on your team. They are amazingly compassionate and helpful in this journey. Well, without any further ado, we're going to go to our interview with Dr. Ralph Corsetti. Welcome to another episode of Keeping Abreast with Karen on Mammary Monday. Dr. Corsetti, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Karen. Dr. Corsetti is the Associate Professor of Surgery and Medical Director at Tansy Breast Center, Oshner, New Orleans. And I guess just right out of the shoot, Dr. Corsetti, what influenced you to become a specialist in breast oncology? Um, well, it, it goes back to probably my childhood, uh, as it probably goes back to a lot of uh, physicians that end up treating on, uh, oncological patients. A uh, family member diagnosed with cancer, I remember you know, how hard it was on him, that was my uncle, and um, how hard it was on the family and coping through all his treatments and uh, you know, him ultimately succumbing to his disease. Uh, you know, really sparked an interest for me in the, you know, the compassionate side of medicine that comes with this specialty. Um, so sometimes we can't cure patients, we can't heal them, uh, but we try our best and, uh, you know, compassion is, you know, compassion is a big part of our specialty. Uh, trying to make patients understand their disease, help them understand disease, uh, provide expectations of, as to what's coming in the future for them. And, you know, hopefully we have good outcomes. And, you know, with breast, you know, I've, I've kind of specialized into this field over the last 10, 15 years, uh, you know, specifically because we do have good outcomes. It's a, a very uh, well-informed uh, patient population due to all the you know, research that goes on with breast. Uh, the, you know, the amount of information on breast out there is much more widely available than any other cancer subtype. And because of that, and awareness and research dollars, such as provided by your foundation, Karen, uh, we're getting better and better at treating it. Where we now, you know, we cure, you know, over 80% of all cancers that come our way. And I, and I think that's pretty good. That's a wonderful number, and that's such a relief to hear. Uh, and that makes me smile. And, and I have seen firsthand how very caring and gentle you are delivering news to a patient. And with that said, how do you um, how do you help a patient decide when breast surgery is is the way to go that it's the best course of action for them? Um, there are lumpectomies, there are mastectomies. Maybe explain to our audience what those two differences are. Okay, so uh, when a patient typically comes to me, I'd say the majority of the time they already have the diagnosis in hand. Occasionally a patient will be in my clinic for the first time with an, you know, an abnormal clinical finding and then we work it up and diagnose it. But a lot of the times the first encounter with me is that they already have a diagnosis established. So a lot of our first initial encounter you know, will revolve around deciding what the therapy is and what the course of action is gonna be. And as you probably know, we give them a lot of information in that first visit, probably an overwhelming amount of information regarding surgery, different types of surgery, lumpectomy, mastectomy, radiation, chemotherapy, what it all means, reconstruction. And it's a lot for them to digest. And so I, I usually try to focus on the part where they're gonna have to help me make the decision as how they wanna be treated. Whether we recommend chemotherapy or radiation or endocrine therapy, 
there's pretty strict guidelines. And so those recommendations are gonna be in place. But really, I'd say the hard part for the patient comes into deciding whether they want a mastectomy or whether they want a lumpectomy. So we're really stress the importance of having them understand why we're picking one or why we're having them choose one or the other. So when you're doing breast surgery, you have to remove the tumor. So if you do remove the tumor, that's called the lumpectomy. So there's other synonymous terms for a lumpectomy, whether you call it a partial mastectomy, which is just removing part of the breast, lumpectomy, segmentectomy, quadrantectomy, tylectomy, breast conservation surgery, they all basically mean the same thing. You're removing the tumor in the area of abnormality with about a half inch of healthy normal tissue around it. The analogy is kind of, you know, if your tumor is a, a cherry pit, you're taking the cherry out. If it's a peach pit, you're taking the whole peach out. You're trying to get an area of normal uh, uh, tissue around it. And you can explain to the patient that because the breast ducts typically run from the the back of the breast to the front of the breast, from the chest wall up to the nipple, side to side, you just may not be certain that you've removed all the tumor cells that are involving that, that ductal system that's involved with cancer. So that's where radiation comes into play. So after you have a lumpectomy, even if the pathologist tells you that you've removed the whole tumor and you got great margins, we know that it will come back in that area if you don't radiate it. it will, I mean, it will come back about 30% of the time. So one time out of three, it will come back in that area if you don't radiate what's left in the breast. So that's why typically a lumpectomy is followed by radiation. Radiation just sterilizes uh, the residual breast that's around the area of the lumpectomy in case you left some microscopic disease behind. So that's one way to treat it. And the patient that's highly motivated to save their breasts, we can pursue that option for them. They get to pr typically preserve the nipple and the areola and the function of the nipple areolar complex with sensation and erectile function. The other treatment for breast cancer would be a mastectomy, which means to remove the entire breast. And you can typically kind of understand that if you remove the entire breast, it's very unlikely that you've left any abnormal breast tissue behind. So if you remove the breast, you typically don't have to radiate. So the two options are lumpectomy plus radiation versus a mastectomy without radiation. And we tell patients that the local recurrence rate, meaning the chance of it coming back in your breast or on your chest wall in the area where you did surgery is roughly the same. It's around you know three or 4% with a mastectomy, maybe about four or 5% with lumpectomy and radiation. And those are statistically equal. So it's really the patient's choice which way they want to go. Now, if they want to save their breasts, preserve the nipple areolar function, um, that's fine. And they want to go with the lumpectomy and radiation. It's going to require uh, vigilant surveillance with screening and diagnostic mammograms in the future, potentially more biopsies. But if a patient's highly motivated to save their breast and the tumor is small enough where we can save the breast, we typically go in that direction. Uh, some patients want to have the whole breast removed to just avoid radiation, which I think is, is fine too. So some women, you know, if they live in a demographic area where they're, you know, they're driving an hour back and forth every day to come for radiation, they may not want to do that. And if they're comfortable, you know, psychologically, socially, emotionally, sexually with the loss of their breast, they may just choose a mastectomy and avoid the radiation. And, um, and then, you know, we just surveil them with clinical exams of their chest wall. They typically don't need mammograms anymore. Um, but if a patient's motivated to save their breasts, we can do that. And um, we do the lumpectomy, follow it by radiation, and then we 
vigilantly surveil them with, with imaging. And we know that the recurrence rate in that breast area is around 5%. Um, so the patients understand that if the tumor did come back after a lumpectomy and radiation, they would need to have a mastectomy because we can't radiate a second time. And then we have certain circumstances where we can't recommend a lumpectomy. And those uh, are, if, you know, if a patient's had radiation before, like I said, we typically can't radiate a second time. If they have certain connective tissue disorders like scleroderma, that's an absolute contraindication to radiation because it would cause significant uh, uh, you know, scarring and pain on the chest wall if the patient had that. Uh, so those patients typically get directed towards mastectomy. If the patient has a really big tumor in their breast, uh, as it relates to the size of their breast, we typically recommend a mastectomy. Um, if it's in multiple quadrants, if it's in multiple areas of the same breast, we typically recommend a mastectomy. There's really no absolute size that we use. We, we kind of use a guideline of four to five centimeters, whether it be a mass or calcifications. Um, but once you start getting an area over five centimeters, there's a reasonable chance that you know, you're probably leaving microscopic disease behind if, if you do a lumpectomy. Um, but, you know, women that have very large breasts, uh, we can do uh, oncoplastic reduction where we remove large lumps and reduce the size of their breasts and then follow that with radiation. So there's, there's many avenues you can pursue. And it, this is really where the doctor-patient relationship becomes very important in trying to make the best decision for the patient and what's right for the patient and really letting them decide. And if they're making a decision, you know, you feel is reasonable and then, then we we follow through with their request. Um, you know, if their whole breast is full of disease, you know, we really steer them away from breast conservation surgery. Mm -hmm. Your explanation was so crystal clear. I appreciate that. I know our listeners appreciate it too, because cancer, breast cancer, is very much like a thumbprint, and um, there's not a blanket course of action. And to know all those differences and decisions uh, to be made is super helpful. And you're right, when a patient is being diagnosed and visiting with a doctor, it's really important for that person to bring someone along with them, possibly with notepad or recording the conversation, because when you're getting hit with all of that, um, it, it just blindsides you and you, you wind up not hearing any of it. So right. when um, a patient is coming to see you or a doctor, in reference to their disease, they really should have someone in support for them right. there. I, th I, um, really, uh, I was going to say, I think it's really important that, and I know this is how I, I practice in my practice and uh, my partners similarly. Um, you know, when a patient comes in and they tell me, they're like, I want a mastectomy, you know, the first thing then I will respond with is like, tell me why you want a mastectomy. And if they tell me that, you know, I'm 85 years old and uh, I don't have anybody with me to drive me every day for radiation, I live an hour away from a radiation center, then that's a very, very appropriate reason to choose mastectomy. And we'll, we'll say, okay, that, that's a good choice and we'll go through with that. But if they'll tell me, sometimes I get this, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, why are you picking a mastectomy? It's like, They'll say, well, I pick a mastectomy so I don't have to have chemotherapy. I'd rather remove my whole breast so I don't have to have chemotherapy. Well, that's when we stop them and we re-educate them and say, that really has no influence on the decision for chemotherapy because the decision for chemotherapy is what's the risk that you have disease outside of your breast. If that risk, 
and, and it's at that moment in time. So if you come see me and in, in that moment in time, you have a high risk of having disease elsewhere outside your breast, you're going to get chemotherapy. Um, and that's irregardless of whether you have a lumpectomy or whether you have a mastectomy, it's what's the risk that there's disease in your body that you could relapse from. So, you know, if you have a high risk that there's disease already spread, then no matter what I do, whether I do a lumpectomy or whether I do a mastectomy is not going to influence anything that's happening in your liver or your bones. You know, we may recommend chemotherapy. So occasionally a patient will change their mind because they're like, Oh, I, I was told if I had a mastectomy, I wouldn't need chemotherapy. And that's just a, a fallacy. You know, it really has nothing to do with that. So I really, my point is I really try to understand why they're choosing what they choose. And if it makes sense, great. If it doesn't make, you know, scientific sense, we try to at least give them the information to, to make a better informed decision. And with that said, um, it's not like once you have decided to move forward with chemotherapy, you just go to the pharmacy, pull the breast cancer chemo off the shelf and administer. Right. It's There's so many different choices um, and avenues for radiation and chemo. Um, can you talk a little bit about neoadjuvant chemo and when that course of action is appropriate? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you just mentioned that as the next segue because the one thing I left out on choosing a lumpectomy is that sometimes a woman may really want to pursue breast conservation surgery and not want to have a mastectomy. And one of the options to satisfy that desire is to give them pre-op chemotherapy. Now, you don't want to give someone chemotherapy that otherwise wouldn't have needed it. But if they were going to get chemotherapy anyways, we give it to them on the front end and shrink the tumor. And that way we could potentially do a lumpectomy when we otherwise would have needed to do a mastectomy. But in typically, that's one reason to do neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, the other things we look at specifically when someone comes to see me is their receptor status on their tumor. And so we look at their estrogen receptor, their progesterone receptor, their HER2 new receptor. Those three receptors are very key in determining how we're going to treat them. So if a woman has, and the most common is estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor positive, HER2 new negative tumor. Those are the most common tumors. Those are the common tumors in the elderly women that have breast cancer. They behave the best, and those women may not need any chemotherapy at all. So if they have those receptors, and they're surgically operable, meaning a smaller tumor, no clinically abnormal lymph nodes when you examine their axilla, we typically go to surgery first. If they have a big tumor with those receptors, we will then often do either pre-op chemotherapy or pre-op endocrine therapy, where we give them the anti-estrogen pills first to shrink the tumor to try to get a response uh, to make the surgery easier, or again, potentially downstage them from what would have been a potential mastectomy down to a possible lumpectomy if that's what the patient wants. Another thing we do with those well-behaving receptors is if it's a, you know, at least a clinical stage two presentation that means a tumor over two centimeters or a tumor with a positive node that has favorable receptors, we'll do genomic analysis. So we'll take the tumor and test it to see if it's genetically aggressive with either this oncotype DX or a mammoprint. And if it shows it's a high-risk tumor, then we we know they're going to get chemotherapy no matter what. We often will give it to them on the front end to then downstage the tumor, allow time for genetic testing to come back to see what surgery the patient wants to do, get them involved with a plastic surgeon, and really coordinate their long-term care. Um, so that's the more common type, the ERP or positive HER2 negative. 
And then the, the lesser common types, which each are about 20% of the, of the diagnoses, are either a triple negative cancer or a HER2 positive cancer. And both of those are pretty aggressive cancers where you're likely going to get chemotherapy no matter what, unless the tumor is really small, you know, under uh, a half a centimeter or, you know, some instances under a centimeter, but sometimes even something between five and 10 millimeters, even if you have negative lymph nodes, if you have these aggressive receptors, you're going to get um, some form of chemotherapy, either three months or six months. So we look at the size at which they present. So if a tumor that's either HER2 positive or triple negative presents clinically stage two, that's either a tumor bigger than two centimeters or with a positive node, we will recommend pre-op chemotherapy. And there's lots of reasons to do that. So pre-op chemotherapy, number one, I'm a surgeon. And like I tell people, I'm the first person to admit that what I do for your care of your breast cancer is not going to be as important as to what my colleagues, the medical oncologists do in treating your whole body. And the way I tell people to look at that is that people don't die of breast cancer from breast cancer in their breast because the breast is not a vital organ. They die if it's spread to their liver, their lungs, or brain, or vital organs. So what I do is not as important as what my colleagues do. So if what my colleagues do is more important, why not do it first? Why not get the most important treatment first? So that's one reason to look at pre-op chemotherapy. The other reason is you can assess the response. So if I did your surgery first and removed your tumor, and then I gave you chemotherapy, well, you really wouldn't know if that chemo was working or doing anything because there's nothing left behind to gauge a response. There's no gross disease left, so you can't really see if the chemotherapy is doing anything. Whereas if you leave the tumor in place and give pre-op chemotherapy, you can see if it's shrinking. If it's shrinking, we know it's working, and we continue with that course of action. Whereas if it's not shrinking, we're able to change course of action and go with a different chemotherapy drug. Whereas if I had removed it first, you would never know whether that drug was working or not. So kind of like an antibiotic, right? If you're sick and you're on an antibiotic, you're not getting better, you may change to a different antibiotic. So it allows us to assess the response. It allows us to shrink it so the surgery will be easier. And in doing that, we may potentially do less surgery, so less lymph nodes removed. We may sterilize your lymph nodes where we don't end up taking a bunch of lymph nodes out, uh, maybe downstage enough where we don't radiate you. And so all these, the lesser you do, the lesser amount you do, the perhaps the less morbidity the patient has. So if you can avoid taking a bunch of lymph nodes out or perhaps avoid radiation therapy if you completely sterilize the tumor sometimes with chemotherapy, all those are potential benefits for the patient. And again, it also gives you time to coordinate things like genetic testing, which takes a few weeks to get back, consultation with plastic surgery, coordination of surgery. Um, so, you know, to summarize, basically, any large tumor is going to be considered for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, large tumors or patients with positive nodes. If you're triple negative or HER2 positive, you're likely going to be offered preoperative chemotherapy unless it's a really tiny tumor and we can just proceed with surgery. The reason there is if you have a tiny tumor that's triple negative or HER2 positive and you end up lymph node negative by doing your surgery first, you'll get a shorter course of chemotherapy. So we don't want to overtreat people. So for the really tiny tumors, even though they have aggressive receptors, we do surgery first to get them staged so we give them the right amount of treatment. We, you know, we want to treat them properly, not undertreat them nor overtreat them. Um, so that's neoadjuvant chemotherapy. 
We also can use neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, and we've been doing a lot of that in the COVID crisis. So these patients that have had these ER-positive HER2-negative tumors that may not need chemotherapy, uh, this is a very common technique in Europe is to give neoadjuvant endocrine therapy, where we can give the uh, anti-estrogen, anti-progesterone receptor drugs for four to six months before surgery, also shrink the tumor. Most patients get shrinkage of the tumor to make their surgery easier. And it's been a great strategy through COVID because it's allowed us to buy some time during the crisis where we weren't allowed to do elective surgeries. That's um, all very encouraging. And um, as we said earlier, it's all a thumbprint because it's very different for everyone. And Correct. a very difficult aspect of that as the patient, you don't feel ill and you're having to make all these decisions about your treatment and you know it's going to make you very sick and that is a conflict all its own as well um yeah. what what do you recommend for patients going through those types of anxieties yeah you make a very important point that it's it's really a tailored prescription in terms of what you're going to recommend for treatment everybody's a little bit different and patients will often come and say well my friend had this and that and and you know, my friend had chemotherapy, but no radiation. Why am I getting radiation, but no chemotherapy? So they're all, they're all different. And, they're, and to try to understand the rationale, the basic concepts are you know, local, regional, and systemic disease. So local diseases in your breast, regional diseases in your lymph nodes, and systemic diseases looking at your whole body. And we, just, we know that surgery and radiation are local regional treatments. They only treat where you go or where you deliver the area. So, they're only to a, a set area, uh, which is basically the breast and the lymph nodes, whereas you know, chemotherapy, endocrine therapy is a systemic treatment. It treats your whole body. And, um, and so understanding what's at risk. Is your breast more at risk or is your whole body more at risk, right? If someone has a whole breast full of stage zero DCIS, that breast is at risk, but their whole body is not at risk. So it often means a mastectomy and nothing else. Whereas if they have a small triple negative tumor, really their body is at risk and not so much their breast. So we can do a lumpectomy and still have to give chemotherapy. So it, it's yes. assessing the risks for local regional systemic disease. And, you know, to, to try to relieve their anxieties, I, you know, it, um, I try to reiterate the points that, you know, we still cure 80% of all breast cancers that come our way. Um, when someone presents with me with stage zero DCIS, one of the first things I'll tell them is that, we're gonna spend an hour here together talking about different treatment options and why they're recommended, why things uh, are gonna go the way they are, or why we recommend this or recommend that and why we don't recommend that. But the bottom line for DCIS when I have a patient walk out of my room is I tell them the chances that you ever die of breast cancer is gonna be 1% or less. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you decide, make sure you go home and focus on, on that last number in terms of dealing with your anxiety and stresses that with DCIS, it is very, very, very unlikely that you will ever die of your disease. Now, you may, you may lose your breast, you may need to have radiation, but it will be very unlikely that you die of that disease. And, and that's we have the some, upside. When, when do you decide um, that a patient should have a biopsy? Um, there are a couple of biopsies. One I'm personally familiar with, a sentinel node biopsy. And when is an axillary lymph node dissection the course of action? Okay. So what a sentinel lymph node biopsy is, is, is 
is trying to figure out which lymph node in your armpit. Now, breast cancer is typically spread from the breast to the armpit as the first point of drainage or where they're going to spread first. So what you're trying to figure out is if you can really find which lymph node that this tumor would spread to if it wanted to spread to, that would be great. That's called the sentinel node. And if you could really identify which is the sentinel node and just take that lymph node out, then your rate of getting permanent swelling or lymphedema under your arm is only about 1% or 2%. Whereas if I take all the lymph nodes out before the sentinel lymph node biopsy technique was developed, we used to take all these lymph nodes out and those patients had at least, you know, a 20 to 25% chance of having permanent lymphedema. So it really revolutionized breast cancer for two ways. It was a better treatment with less morbidity and it was more accurate. So it was a win-win situation. So once it became developed, it really took off. So the way we identify the sentinel node is we inject both a blue dye and a, and a radioactive material right under the nipple of the breast that's involved with the cancer and give that a few minutes while you're asleep in surgery. It's all done while you're asleep and while we're doing your surgery. It only takes a few minutes for the blue dye and the radioactivity to kind of get and migrate to your armpit, to the lymph node. And we use the blue dye and the radioactivity because it really uses my sense of sight, so I can look for the blue dye and see which lymph node is stained blue when we're doing surgery. And then we have a, a little handheld Geiger counter. It's not really a Geiger counter, it's a gamma probe. It's, it is the basics of a Geiger counter. It picks up the radioactivity signal from the injection. So I'm using my ears to listen for the signal. So I'm listening with my ears for a signal of radioactivity and I'm looking with my eyes to see which one is blue. And with that, you're like 99% accurate in terms of identifying the sentinel node, meaning that would be the breast, uh, the, if the breast tumor were to want to spread, that's the lymph node it would go to. So we do that with a little cut under the arm or as part of the mastectomy and just take out one or two lymph nodes, um, theoretically one lymph node, occasionally two or three lymph nodes, and have those tested. So that's the sentinel node. And so what's the indication? So if you have an invasive cancer, if you have a stage one, two, or three cancer, and you have an invasive infiltrating ductal or invasive lobular carcinoma as your new diagnosis, you're going to get a sentinel node. If you have non-invasive cancer, non-invasive cancer theoretically hasn't spread or should have spread to an armpit lymph node. So we often don't do a sentinel node. I use sentinel nodes selectively with DCIS stage zero if it's a tumor that presents as a palpable mass that was needle biopsied that showed uh, DCIS only if it's a high-grade area, a large area of calcifications, if it's in the upper outer quadrant. The reason is all those tumors have a slightly increased risk of upstaging to invasive cancer when you take them out. So what I try to avoid is to do a lumpectomy and then for non-invasive disease and then have the final pathology show some invasive disease and then I would have to go back and do a sentinel node and it doesn't work because I've disturbed that area from the first surgery and then I'm stuck having to take out a whole bunch of lymph nodes which I know are likely going to be negative and then we put you at risk for lymphedema. So we use sentinel node selectively for certain cases of DCIS. We do it for all cases of invasive disease and when we don't do it in terms of going back to still doing the straightforward old-fashioned axillary dissection is if you're fearful that your sentinel lymph node won't work well. And so what are those situations? People that present with inflammatory breast cancer where their lymphatics are already plugged up with tumors, I can inject 
blue dye and radioactivity in the breast, but it probably won't go to the lymph node because the, the breast and lymphatics are already plugged up with tumor. It's going to be inaccurate. People that present with lymph nodes that you can feel under their arm, um, if you go to surgery first, we often don't do a sentinel node because the blue dye and radioactivity may not get to that lymph node because it's probably replaced with tumor. It may go to some other lymph node. Some other lymph node may be blue and radioactive, and you may actually leave the lymph node that has cancer in it behind. That's called a false negative sentinel node. So we're very selective. The, the basic principle is do a sentinel lymph node when you think it will be accurate and it's going to change uh, your potential treatment of the patient. So for an invasion of the lymph nodes is the highway to your body. We want to try to, to uh, mediate that as quickly as possible during a diagnosis. Please correct me if I'm wrong, because once right. it gets on that lymph node highway, um, it's, it's out of control very often. Well, you're certainly at high risk that it's gone elsewhere. So that's why a lymph node being positive has been a traditional pathway to recommending chemotherapy because it's like, you know, if it's spread already from your breast to your lymph node, then there's a reasonable chance it's also spread from a lymph node somewhere else in your body. So we want to give you chemotherapy to treat your whole body. Now we're beginning. And that, Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. And that's the main reason for early detection. If we can get early detection in place, we can avoid so many of these treatments because um, you catch it early and that's the goal. Correct. Correct. Yeah. The early, the earlier you screen and catch a, catch a tumor and, you know, in the U S probably, you know, at least a quarter, if not more, 25, 30% of all our diagnoses are DCIS stage zero. And that's only because of early screening and certainly with you know advances in screening with as you know with digital tomosynthesis and you know 3d screening we're finding things much earlier so finding things much earlier will potentially avoid less lymph node surgery less lymphedema decrease the need for chemotherapy for sure that's music to my ears i i have so many more questions i'd like to ask you but unfortunately we're running out of time could we invite you back uh for another segment maybe really touch on precision medicine, how it affects breast right. oncology patients. And you'll be happy to know that our bill did pass for precision medicine in Louisiana just last week. It is awaiting the governor's signature now. And I can briefly tell people that is gene mapping. So you get a specific prescription of medication for your treatment. I'm so excited to tell you that. That's, that's great news. There's another we did a little study and um, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk to you and Julie Stokes about sometime. You know, I'll just give you a brief outline. We did a study where we found, you know, the, the cancers that were diagnosed in the country uh, stage per stage, um, you know, typically African-American women get diagnosed a little bit earlier stage per stage, you know, five to mm -hmm. seven years earlier than the average white uh, Caucasian uh, female. Mm -hmm. and, with all the NIH guidelines with screening mammograms, as you know, the societies, there's like seven different societies that recommend screening starting at age 40. Some of them start at age 50. And so some of them have compromised to start at age 45. My point is in this paper that we've written or we're putting together um, is that you really shouldn't have the same number for every person. So if you're, if you're more at risk, you should have a different number. So when you look at the national data, like when the NIH put the data together, 
and said we should start screening at age 50. Well, they looked at the whole nation's database, which is you know 90% uh, non-African-American. And so the numbers didn't look so bad. But if you look at the New Orleans or Orleans Parish demographics where 50% of the women are African-American, you really probably want to start screening those patients at age 40 because they get it sure. earlier age. So uh, the city of Atlanta and Emory, they put together a very similar kind of paper and Emory has very, you know, similar demographics. So that's something I would like to get through you and Julie at some point and push that, you know, if, it, if we ever get a pushback of starting screening mammograms at age 40 and say we should go with some of the other national guidelines of 45 or 50, we should say no, you know, especially in Orleans Parish. We would love to to explore that, absolutely. Um, our side mission, Cancer Advocacy Group of Louisiana, is for that purpose, uh, specifically to make sure that cancer patients get what they need in Louisiana, and, and we can certainly um, visit that very, very soon. Dr. Corsetti, I don't wanna say goodbye today. This has been so interesting and so informative, and. Uh, if you don't mind, we'll be in touch and yeah. set up another interview very, very soon. That would be great. Happy to do it anytime, Karen. Thank you. And I appreciate your help so much and your support. We love you guys at Oshner. Okay. All right. Have a great day. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I could listen to Dr. Corsetti talk all day. I, I hang on every word. He is so interesting. There was so much information, and I, I did not expect to be feel as emotional as I did afterwards because it kind of took me back to my journey even though it was nearly 20 years ago uh some of those memories are still very fresh it's a trauma it's a trauma so it, it it's always going to be right there it's going to be something that you, you have to cope with all the time as we talk about uh there's a mental health aspect to cancer that is widely ignored not completely, not totally. We know there are people out there that, that help care for this, but probably not enough. And they'll tell you that. that and it's, it is starting to get more attention and, and respect, I guess, in that I can remember I was told that all those things I was feeling were in my head when it was happening. And I knew it wasn't, which was very frustrating. Um, but that was 20 years ago, and this is where we are now. So thank God that's changing. Well, look, when we, were, when we heard Caroline's interview and she talked about the art therapy that she had done and, and, the, and the good that it had done. And my favorite part was, you know, people finding out, well, it wasn't so great, but I had fun doing it anyway. And I actually, I, I understand that. I'm not very good with brush in hand, but uh, it's about the process and it's about the way you feel and it's about expressing the way you feel and, and pardon the pun, but getting it off your chest, so to speak. Big time. And I think you learned a few things today, too, Chuck, that you weren't aware of that was going on when we were going through the crisis ourselves. A hundred percent. There's lots of things that go on with the patient that you don't consider. Dr. Corsetti talked a lot about the different options that women had, uh, whether it was having a complete mastectomy, having the lumpectomy, having reduction, uh, breast aesthetic, uh, how it affects uh, sexual activity and the preference of that person. You know, not everybody thinks about that because everybody's choices in that area would be different. And that's where their compassion comes in. They take the time to find out what's best for that patient's recovery. And it's different for everyone. And all of those topics, you typically would not go home and discuss with your kids because these are adult burdens. And, you know, you do want your, ch your children to feel secure and safe. And you 
don't necessarily have to give them all of the big scary information, but having it um, in your back pocket moving forward, you, you can make the better choices. You know, knowledge is power. We say that all the time. You can't have too much of it. If it's quality and it's the right kind of knowledge, if Correct. it's fact, and, and that's what we aim to do with this podcast, and that's we want to have some fun because this is not a fun topic. It's hard to shine a bright light on breast cancer, but there's inspirational things. There's good medicine out there. There's and innovation coming. You're, you're spot on, and it's um, putting a positive spin on a really bad situation is not a bad thing to do, and we're going to continue to do that and continue to bring our listeners fabulous information, wonderful guests. I think you're going to be very surprised where this goes. That's good because we're not even sure where this is going right now, but we're having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, tell your friends about it. If you know somebody that's going through breast cancer or if they've been through breast cancer, this is always going to be on their mind. It, this affects all of us. If we bring you some comfort during the day, if we are able to educate, inform, maybe even entertain, please tell somebody about us. Tell them to search for the Keeping Abreast with Karen wherever they get their podcasts. We also want you guys to know that you can leave us a voicemail. We want you to be able to participate with the show. If you go to ktsrbi.org and click on the podcast tab, you will see a link to leave us a voicemail straight from your phone. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know about any questions you have that we could ask guests, whether that be cancer survivors, medical professionals, or any other supporters in this, in this arena. Yes, we're here to help in any way possible, and we're happy to do that by leaving a message, contacting us via email. If we don't have the answers, we'll help you find the best answers we can for you. We're adding our interviews with a visual element on YouTube. Look, Search for Karen T. Stahl. Also, you can find us on all of our social media at Karen T. Stahl 3D, or just visit our website, www.ktsrbi.org. Have a fabulous week, and we look forward to speaking with you and all of our listeners next week. Demand 3D. Please.